0: Welcome back to the Narrative Monopoly podcast. I hope that you enjoyed the 4th of July weekend. We took that off. I hope you weren't missing us too badly. But today's episode is a great one with Brian Riedel. He is the foremost authority on the federal budget and the federal debt. And I promise you, it is more interesting than it sounds. You're going to learn a lot. It comes in at just under an hour. And so without further ado, let's press play. This may be the most important podcast I've ever done and ever will do. Today, our guest is Brian Riedel, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He was the chief economist for Senator Rob Portman. He has been the budget and spending architect for four presidential campaigns. Uh, But most importantly, he is probably the foremost authority on the federal debt um, spending, the entitlement crisis, Everything that is labeled in, in the, the ether is, is boring. We will dispel that myth. It is not boring and it is very, very important. How are you, Brian?
1: I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: I, I'm doing great. I see you. You know, you can't, people aren't, aren't going to be able to see this, but we already have the binder out. We, we're going to have a lot of stats on this one. Uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's just dive right into it. Why mm-hmm. is the federal debt? so important. And actually let's level set, right? So when I started caring about this, the federal debt was like 10 trillion dollars and that seemed enormous. And then pre-pandemic it was about 17, I believe, 17 trillion dollars. And so where where are we at right now and why and then go into why is it so important?
1: Sure. The, the debt right now is about 23 trillion. The debt held by the public It is growing rapidly. It was $17 trillion before the pandemic. And a decade from now, it's going to be $35 trillion. And that's assuming no new spending programs or tax cuts. We're going to go from $17 trillion to $35 trillion in a little over a decade. If the Biden agenda is passed, you're looking at closer to $45 trillion. These numbers are monopoly numbers. I mean, $17 trillion, $45 trillion. Nobody can actually grasp what this means. So let me let me explain why this matters. Uh, it matters twofold. The most direct reason is even if we never pay back the debts, which I think is, is a pretty safe assumption that we're just going to keep rolling it over, we're going to have to pay interest on the debt. And anyone who has a big student loan can tell you that we're, even when interest rates are low, if you owe a huge amount of money, the interest on the debt becomes absolutely enormous. And we're on the pace right now where over the next couple of decades, even if we do nothing else, even under the rosy scenario, nearly half of your federal income taxes are going to go to pay the interest on the debt, half of your income taxes. So that means less money for education, less money for health care, less money for welfare, less money for defense, less money for tax cuts it's going to become the biggest part of the federal budget. And that's under the rosy. We can get into the assumptions later and why this is actually the, these numbers are the, are the unrealistic rosy assumption. But the reality is the the first reason you should care is because that's where all your taxes are going to go and which means less money for other priorities. The second reason is government debt is bad for the economy in that, There's a there's a set amount of savings in the economy, and these savings are borrowed by businesses for business loans, car loans, home loans, a lot of the things that grow the economy, like business investment. But the more the government borrows up those savings, the less money is left for business loans, home loans, and car loans, which means the cost of those go up, the interest rate. And you get less business investment, less buying homes, and less buying uh, of buying cars. And when that happens, the economy grows more slowly. According to the Congressional Budget Office, if the debt continues on its current track, over the next, by by 30 years from now, our income will be $6,000 per person less than otherwise not 6000 per family 6000 per person so a family of 4 would have an income $24000 lower than otherwise because just because of the slower economic growth because all the money that was supposed to go for business investment home loans and car loans was instead gobbled up by the government to pay for for social security and medicare are, are you talking about crowding out crowding out so if you don't want all your taxes to go for interest on the debt and you want to have more income and lower interest rates, you need to care about this.
0: Now I I would actually push back. uh, And obviously I'm going to agree with a lot of the stuff you're going to say here today. Um, I, I would push back on the, predictions like the 30 year cbo prediction around around uh you know income because th- those those things do not take into account you know like technological progress like the cbo is not they they did not predict the financial crisis they did not predict the rise of the internet you know they they don't have that ability so so let's what i want to do is is connect it a little bit closer to home for people so you're talking about how much they're going to pay in taxes Right. So if if just if nothing gets done, you're saying that the middle class would pay half of their of their income in taxes.
1: And is that that's going to the interest? So h- half of the taxes they pay will go to interest. on OK. The and and even then you're going to the deficits are unsustainable. Let, let, let me throw some numbers out there. I mean, I will put it in nominal dollars first. According to the Congressional Budget Office, the baseline deficit under the rosiest scenario possible is $100 trillion in budget deficits over the next 30 years. That is the scenario that assumes no new spending, all tax cuts expire, no wars, no recessions, and interest rates stay low forever. $100 trillion. By... 2050, the deficit would be 12 and a half percent of GDP per year, which is enormous. Uh, you know Usually the deficit's been one to two percent of GDP, sometimes three or four. Twelve percent of GDP, nearly half of everything we spend uh, will come from borrowing. No country can sustainably run a deficit of 12 percent of GDP. Uh, you know you, What's sustainable is considered two to three percent. But that's the rosy scenario. Let's assume interest rates rise by one point higher than the CBO baseline. CBO assumes interest rates will stay relatively low for 30 years. Very unlikely that they're going to stay low, especially when that causes interest rates to rise. If interest rates exceed the CBO baseline by one percentage point, that will add $30 trillion in interest over 30 years. One percentage point. By the end of 30 years, you're looking at a debt of about three times the size of our economy. You're looking at two thirds of your taxes going to interest on the debt, and the government borrowing about 16% of GDP per year. Again, these are numbers no country has ever been able to sustain. Like, I mean, these numbers are insane. You can't have that. So, what that tells you is forget adding new spending. Forget, well, can we afford what President Biden wants to do? Can we afford Medicare for All? Can we afford Green New Deal, student loans? Just paying for the current commitments, the current programs, is enough to basically have to double your taxes and have upwards to half, two-thirds, or more of your taxes just go to the interest on the debt under the rosy scenario. And it's easy to say, well, that's 30 years from now. Well, yeah, but the time to fix it is now because once you're once you're at 30 years there's nothing really you can do except run the printing press or double or triple your taxes you have to actually avoid the problem in the first place so the numbers get really bad just in the baseline
0: now we're going to get into the history of it and kind of the the, the politics behind it but what actually happens if these predictions come true right so besides just the the tax implications besides the potential for inflation is there some sort of doomsday financial crisis um like what, what what are the specifics if we hit you know certain milestones that i know that you you have in your mind
1: there there's no specific number where you say well when the debt hit crosses this threshold we have a crash
0: and 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 to preface we are at over hundred percent
1: we're at hundred percent of gdp right now the only other time we've ever been hundred percent of gdp in the debt was immediately the end of world war ii and right at the end of world war ii we basically ran 30 years of near balanced budgets to to, to reduce the debt right now we're going the opposite uh trend we're, we're increasing deficits it's not likely you're going to have one day where just the economy collapses what you might have is a series of mini panics and what happens there is the debt gets to a certain point, let's say during a recession where the debt, where, the, where we're borrowing a lot, where Wall Street panics. And the, the people who lend us the money, the people who lend Washington the money panic and say, we don't think you're good for this. We don't think you can necessarily pay us back. We don't think your finances are in order. We're going to stop lending you money. And then the government has to raise interest rates. They have to basically offer more interest rates in order to get people to to give them money. Well, what happens then is the more you raise interest rates, the interest costs just go up further, (laughs) which means then you have to borrow even more. It's a spiral. And you you have what's called a debt and interest cycle where one rises causes the other rise to cause the other rise. What I think would probably happen is you'll have some point where the markets panic and we have to raise interest rates uh, in order to to get them to finance us, and then they look for the low hanging fruit deficit reduction. they 'll raise taxes on the rich and they'll cut defense. The That'll hold you over for a couple of years, but the spending is rising too fast. so you'll have another mini panic. then you'll have to raise taxes on the rich even more, cut defense even more. At that point, you've basically done as far as you can go on those, but you still can't keep up that's when the real choices come during the next mini panic. Your choices at that point are to significantly raise taxes on the middle class or significantly cut middle-class benefits like social security and Medicare that are ultimately driving us uh, off a cliff. So what I think what happens is you gradually have mini panics followed by cutting fat. And then you get to the point where you got to cut the bone and you got to cut out the muscle and, that's when you're really in trouble. Alternatively, you could just decide to run the printing press, like uh, some of our friends in modern monetary theory. But then the problem with running the printing press is you get inflation, which just raises interest rates more. Uh, I don't think we're going to have one day where the economy dies. I think we're going to have these mini panics. And then you, you wake up 30 years from now, and we've, had, we've been Japan. Which means we've had sluggish economic growth uh, like Japan has had, we have a huge debt, and oh by the way, our taxes are through the roof. I think that's where where this ends.
0: now, the time frame to put this in perspective for listeners, right, so the time frame that you're talking about that this would happen hypothetically and and I know that it's impossible to like actually peg when this would happen, yeah. but likely we're talking about <clears throat> when gen. X is, is basically retiring. You know, they're starting to, to really think about, you know, what, what are the, 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 end of the life looks like. And then millennials are, you know, they're, they're starting to become empty nesters or they're, you know, they're, they're raising their kids. Um, and then Gen Z is like, just starting to think about having kids, buying their first home, stuff like that. So this is when, in all of these different life situations, if, your dollar isn't worth anything, or you literally have to pay (laughs) just exorbitant rates in taxes while you're trying to buy a home, while you're trying to pay for your kid's college, while you're trying to think about where you're going to Mm -hmm. retire. These are material hindrances to quality of life issues. And that's not even talking about the ability to actually earn because of the, the lack of economic opportunity that would come from that. Am I
1: playing this out somewhat correctly here? Yeah. I mean, this is coming sooner than people think. I mean, you know, I remember when I was a kid, people were saying, you know, well, in 40 years, everything's going to fall apart. Some of, I mean, the consequences of this, I mean, this could happen as much, this could start in as short as three years. I mean, the, the first, the first of the kind of the mini panics with the market that could be in three years, it could be in 10 years, it could be 12 years, I can say it, it will absolutely be, you know, well within the next 20 years. It has to be because the next 20 years are so bad that something has, something has to break. So, but it's, you know, it, it, as much as it's about market psychology, it's really a matter of when, not if um, again. So, but it, so it, it, it's sooner than people think. And when it happens, like I said, significantly higher taxes, there might be significantly higher inflation and, slower economic growth, which means fewer jobs. And there could be significant Social Security and Medicare changes too, because like I said, and we can get into this more, it's the reason we have these long-term deficits is virtually entirely because of Social Security and Medicare.
0: Right. So you, you wrote uh, a piece uh, a few years ago that was, was a deep dive into the entitlement crisis, right? It's called the the entitlement crisis ignored. Um, it, it is basically a myth that defense spending is is the you know it is I believe it's fifty percent of the discretionary budget. If I'm getting that right, um, but the largest drivers of our debt are these liabilities that we have: the entitlements of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and, and interest as well. Um, I'm gonna read a I'm gonna read part. Uh, of your uh, piece here, because we're going to, we're going to spice this up. We're going to get, we're going to weave in and out of the politics here to, mm-hmm. to, to make this mm-hmm. thing a little bit spicier for years, Republican leaders from Newt Gingrich to Paul Ryan to Mitt Romney called for modernizing social security and Medicare before they collapsed under the weight of 74 million retiring baby boomers. Then Donald Trump won 88% of Republican voters and the presidency while pledging that quote, there will be no cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Six months later, a Pew poll revealed that only 15% of Republicans support trimming Medicare, and only 10% support Social Security reform. And Remember, in in 2005, President Bush did the huge uh, push to reform Social Security. It failed. Um, I'm continuing here. Democratic support is only 5% and and 3%, respectively. In other words, the entitlement reform general's have no army. So what do we do here if both parties are just big big spending parties? Let's 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 attack it from that
1: angle. Yeah, I mean well for, first on the de, yeah, on, on the defense versus entitlements point in the 1960s defense was 50% of all federal spending. Right now it's 12% of all federal spending. And 30 years from now, it'll be 6% of all federal spending. Uh, defense is a increasingly small part of the budget. Social Security and Medicare are on pace to run $100 trillion in program deficits over the next 30 years. The rest of the budget is balanced over the next 30 years. In fact, starting 20 years from now, the rest of the budget will be in surplus. The reason we have $100 trillion in deficits is because... Medicare faces a $70 trillion deficit over the next 30 years, and Social Security faces a $30 trillion cash deficit over the 30 years. That's the ballgame. By 2050, these two programs alone will be running a deficit of 14% of GDP when you include the the resulting interest costs. And, you know, in the, uh, the article of mine you quoted, which was from National Review a couple of years ago, nobody will talk about Social Security and Medicare. I mean, there is a narrative That Social Security and Medicare are fully paid for, they don't contribute to the deficit, and and you can't touch them. And Paul Ryan, to his credit, knew the numbers and tried to fix it, and he got run over by Democrats. They ran TV ads showing him murdering a senior citizen. And then Donald Trump came ahead, came, came ahead in 2016 and showed that not even Republicans want to touch Social Security or Medicare. Even, even Republicans are overwhelmingly opposed. Trump got elected saying, I will not touch Social Security and Medicare. So right now you have two parties that, have, that do not want to address the drivers of, of the long-term deficit. The problem is they don't have a choice because eventually the laws of math and economics will win um you when you're when you have 100 trillion dollars in new borrowing you're expecting somebody has to lend you that 100 trillion dollars and they're going to have a say in what you're doing right now as well unless you want to print 100 trillion dollars which would be economic chaos so i i've been trying to get congress for 20 years to f- you know fix the roof fix the leaky roof when it's sunny out don't wait for it to rain and <laughs> the Republicans at times tried to get the courage to do it, and the Democrats demagogued the hell out of them. And now Republicans said, The hell with it. We're not going to do this by ourselves. The Democrats want nothing to do with it. In fact, they're trying to, they're pouring gasoline on, on, the, on the fire with their spending. And so you just have two parties in complete denial, in part because the voters are in complete denial. They, they all think Social Security and Medicare are, are, can't run deficits. So that's where we're at. <laughs>
0: all right, so we're we're gonna get them to care. That's the mission that we're on. This is this is the hill to die on. I I will I will absolutely die on this hill. This is the 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 stakes for the future of America. Now let's go down a little side street again and revisit the the first point because I know this stuff definitely gets in the weeds for for folks who do not think about it all the time. So there is a myth that China holds all our debt. Now China only holds a couple, like two or. 300 basis points, right? Two, two,
1: two or 3%. Well, we, we currently have a debt of about 23 trillion. China and Japan each own a little over 1 trillion of it, uh, each out of 23 trillion. Importantly, those numbers haven't moved in 10 years. They have, in the last 10 years, the, the debt has gone from, you know, the, the, the debt has soared over the last uh, uh, 10 years. They've bought none. So they, they, don't, they,
0: they don't have faith in Uncle Sam. Now, now so if that's the case, so if, we, you know, if, if it's only a few
1: percent, who, who's actually holding the debt then? That's, a, that's an interesting question. If you would have asked me this a year and a half ago, I would say the vast majority of the debt is held by American investors. It's held by banks, mutual funds, people, anybody who buys treasury bonds they're holding the bulk of the debt because international borrowing has actually, the last 13 trillion we've borrowed, almost none of it has come internationally. What's interesting is we've been on a hell of a borrowing spree since the pandemic. It's going to be about six or $7 trillion over two years. The vast majority of that has been funded by the printing press. There hasn't been a huge surge in domestic lending to treasury
0: you and know, now really when,
1: mutual funds when you
0: say printing press you're saying that the Fed literally puts government debts so US treasuries onto their balance sheet and they do that by printing money to buy it
1: they're they're not literally printing dollars but they're they're, they're basically crediting the accounts of banks you know and, 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 and in order to buy it now the Fed cannot buy directly from Treasury. Like when the Treasury issues debt, the Fed can't literally buy it from them. So what happens is, investors will buy the debt and then and then sell that to Treasury. (laughs) I'm sorry to the Fed and then sell that to the Federal Reserve. Uh, I misspoke on that one. So indirectly, the Federal Reserve is buying it, and the Federal Reserve's holding of Treasuries uh, last year alone increased by three trillion dollars. Basically, they the Federal Reserve uh, uh, purchased $3 trillion worth of treasury bonds and they paid for it from these banks by crediting the bank's accounts, which is kind of like essentially the printing press. So what we've seen over the past year is a huge monetization of the deficit. In a roundabout way, the Federal Reserve has been financing this borrowing with the printing press. The problem is, that's not sustainable. <laughs> I mean, especially with the amount of borrowing we have in the pipeline. China and Japan can't finance our debt. It's too big. The Federal Reserve can't keep doing this for $100 trillion. So that leaves banks, mutual funds, investors, Wall Street. And that's when you start to eventually get higher interest rates. That's my concern.
0: Now, let's let's close this off. How How much is held by the American public then. So foreign investors are, are a few trillion. The Fed, do, do, do we have numbers on like how much the Fed holds? Sure. I think, I think then- right
1: now of, of 23 trillion, foreign investors hold about 4 trillion. So that gets you down to 19. The Fed holds about 6 trillion total right now. I think that gets you down to 13. So I think the the, the, the other 13 trillion, I, 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 I'm ballparking. Are sure, high- sure. Investors.
0: And so the game of of musical chairs, you're talking about how the interest rates actually rise, right? So what would happen is, and you, you know, these things happen. uh, I think John Cochran talks about how these things happen uh, very slowly and then suddenly. So Mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden, you know, people, people start demanding, they, they start selling or demanding higher interest rates. And all of a sudden, you know, you talked about the, the, the market, um, uh, behavior I think you said or the market psychology yeah. um, all of a sudden the interest rates start going up and the the, the other thing that worries me because because investors are asking for a premium uh, mm-hmm. on that debt now, the other thing that worries me, which I have got I got from John Cochran, is that we are borrowing short term and rolling over the debt, so basically we 're taking out a credit card to pay for our other credit card instead of locking in longer or
1: lower rates long-term. If one of the arguments that absolutely drives me crazy, and we're seeing this in the infrastructure debate, is, well, it's okay to borrow now. We can borrow for infrastructure. We can borrow for all of this because interest rates are low. They're low right now, but we're not locking in long-term interest rates. It's kind of like buying a $10 million house because interest rates are low and then using a short-term adjustable rate mortgage that's going to reset in two years. The average maturity on the federal debt is is 62 months and declining. So the average debt rolls over every five years. That means who cares what interest rates are now? The money we borrow today we're going to be paying interest on forever. We're just going to keep rolling it over forever, which means it really doesn't matter what the rate is today if you're not locking in with 30 or 50-year bonds. If rates spike 5, 8, 10 years from now, then in, in a relatively short period of time, the entire national debt will roll over into those higher interest rates. So the whole who cares because interest rates are low argument is so absolutely short-sighted. You'd never tell a family to take out a massive mortgage on short-term interest rates that, that can adjust any time yet the government is doing it. Uh, like I said, 62 months is the average maturity and it's declining. So that's,
0: that's another myth that the fed just sets interest rates. And so we'll be okay. They'll, they'll just stay there forever. Um, if investors get spooked, interest rates can go up now I believe the the ten year right now is at 1.3 1.5 percent something like that but it was at around five percent in 2005 is, is that do you know if that's correct or around there
1: it, yeah I mean it was yes uh it, it was it was nearly five percent as late as 2007 2008 okay I, it, it, it's declined I mean it was in the 70s and 80s, it was really high. In 1990, it was about eight and a half percent. It then it, it's gradually declined, but it's not going it, to it, it it's not going to continue declining forever. And it's very dangerous to assume it's going to stay between one and two percent forever when actually economic factors are likely to push it upwards. And so right
0: now, what we're
1: seeing with these low interest rates, is that an aberration? Yes, absolutely. Um. The average interest rate paid on the federal debt, like I said, has dropped from about 8.4% to 2% over the past 30 years. That has been driven by a lot of of things that aren't gonna continue. A lot of it, here's one thing that should give economists some humility. Nobody predicted that interest rates would drop for 30 years. It was, economists did not see this coming at all. Yet a lot of economists are now today just as sure that that they're going to continue to be 1% or 2% forever. The reason that's highly unlikely is, first off, part of the reason they're low right now is because we've been in a recession. When the economy recovers, interest rates are going to rise again. If you get any rise in productivity, interest rates are going to rise. If you get a rise in inflation, like from the printing press, interest rates are going to rise. Another factor is, We had more savings and lower interest rates the last couple decades because baby boomers, 74 million of them, were all saving a lot of money. They were maxing out on their 401ks when they're heading for retirement. That meant more savings, lower interest rates. When boomers retire, they're going to start drawing down their savings, which means there's going to be less savings in the economy and interest rates are going to start rising. On an international side, we're already seeing what's called – we're already seeing what's looking like investments moving towards emerging economies in search of higher returns. That again means less lending to the United States federal government because people don't want the low returns. And finally, debt itself raises interest rates. Um, uh, the, the, you know, when government borrows money, there's less savings for the rest of the private sector. According to Ernie Tedeschi. Who is a a well respected economist who's now actually working in the Biden administration? He wrote a very good report that reflected what's mostly an economic consensus right now that the size of the increase in the debt over the next 30 years should all else equal raise interest rates by four percentage points. So remember, I said one percentage point is 30 trillion. The debt itself should cause a 4% increase in interest rates over the next 30 years. Now, we've been lucky up until now that some of those other factors I mentioned had offset that interest rate effect, but they're actually going to reverse themselves. I think the danger right now is interest rates rising drastically, not today, not tomorrow, not a year from now, but I could see 10, 15, 20 years from now, it's very plausible to see interest rates back up to five or six percent, which would essentially bury us uh, in the federal budget. And what happens if it only goes up to two or three? Two or three is survivable over the long term. The Congressional Budget Office remember I said earlier, they assume um, that we spend half of our taxes on interest in 30 years. The CBO assumes that interest rates never again rise above for about 4.4%. They assume that over the next 30 years, the average interest rate paid on the federal debt goes from 2.0 to 4.4. If it goes to 5.4, add 30 trillion. If it goes to 6.4, add another 30 trillion. I think assuming a 2.4% interest rate rise is actually pretty rosy when the debt itself would be driving a 4% increase. Um you would need the other factors affecting interest rates to continue to accelerate and offset that rather than reverse and make it worse. Let let me throw
0: you a curveball here. The United States of America is surrounded by two oceans. We have incredible natural barriers to entry. We're an incredibly safe country from invasion or anything like that. We have rich capital markets. We have we have talent, we have incredible intellectual and and physical property laws. We have navigable rivers. We are still the best bet of any sovereign in terms of credit. So let, let me ask you this. What if investors look around and they're looking for Um, They're they're looking to buy sovereign debt and they say, you know what? The United States of America is still the best bet and it comes down to capital flow and people are still just going to park their their money into US treasuries because Uncle Sam with that army and the geography and the people and the laws cannot fail. Is that an argument against kind of the the doomsday scenario?
1: Well, we always benefit from a reverse risk premium to a certain degree that we are seen as safe. At the same time, we've been seen as a safe, strong economy for 50, 60 years and interest rates haven't stayed at 2%, you know, <laughs> during that whole time, you know, in the 1970s, we were, we were seen as a safe economy. Um, relative to the rest of the world and interest rates were 15%. Uh, I I think it's not that simple for some to suggest that the somewhat global reverse risk premium that makes the United States a relatively safe place to invest, it will be strong enough to keep interest rates at two or 3%. Because that hasn't, that hasn't, that hasn't been how it's worked for that long. Additionally, Again, the more our finances grow out of control, you, start, you still might start to see some cracks in international lending to the United States. But even if it doesn't, the danger we face is we're borrowing $100 trillion under the rosy scenario over 30 years. There isn't enough international savings <laughs> to even finance that. Like, even if people want to keep giving us money, even if China and Japan are interested, they, they don't even have enough savings. I mean, again, China owns $1 trillion of our borrowing or of, of our debt. They could quadruple over the next 30 years to $4 trillion, and that would still only finance 3% <laughs> of the of of the upcoming 100 trillion dollars. Even if these even if these people wanted to lend to us, 100 trillion is so enormous, they can't.
0: Okay, here here's a popular narrative. What if we just liquidate all the billionaires, millionaires <laughs> and billionaires? Let's liquidate them.
1: Uh, you know the funny thing is that when you say liquidate, being on Twitter long enough, I don't know if that's if you mean that in a financial sense or in a terminator sense. <laughs> <laughs> Well,
0: they, yeah. You look no, at Twitter, no. warriors you mean
1: here that in the Terminator sense. Well, here's here he, America's billionaires are worth about four four or five trillion dollars total, their entire net worth. Well, again, you're facing a hundred trillion dollars in deficits over thirty years. You, if we seized every penny of every bit of net worth from every billionaire in America it would finance the budget deficit for about 18 months. And in that time by the way the way you would liquidate their their wealth is by liquidating their investments that is where most of their wealth is held which means you're eviscerating the, everybody's 401k in the process
0: immediate you're, recession.
1: All of the money out of out of the stock market that these people hold their money in. So forget that. I mean you could you could Take every penny they have. That gets you about 18 months. Let's look at the millionaires. If we taxed all income in America earned over the million dollar threshold at 100 percent. So anything earned over the million dollar threshold goes to the government.
0: Are we talking anyone that makes a million dollars a year or anyone worth a
1: million dollars or more? Income annual income. Well, I'm just I, I don't I, the money I'm talking about is annual income. I, I okay. don't have a number for, for net worth, but for annual income over a million. Let's just say we have, we put on a hundred percent tax rate starting at a at a million dollars, and let's assume ridiculously that this has no impact on work effects. They, these people just keep going to work and earning money and happily paying a hundred percent. That would raise taxes by about four percent of GDP. Wouldn't even balance the budget. Like even if you taxed all, all income earned over a million dollars, you wouldn't even balance the budget, much less pay for anything new. And that's even assuming they all work. So the tax the rich arguments, the money just doesn't add up. So the middle class will have to pay. Just like Europe. Europe pays for socialism or democratic uh, or social democracy through payroll taxes and value-added taxes. And ultimately, so will we. And we won't even
0: get anything for it. We'll, we'll just, you know, the potholes will will continue and I'm just paying off the interest.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, see, that's a great point though, is Europe pays really big middle-class taxes, but they get really big middle-class benefits. We're going to pay this all to social security and Medicare. You're not going to necessarily be getting middle-class benefits. You're going to be paying a lot of interest and you're going to be paying for social security. You're going to be paying for old people. You're not going to, Working families paying the taxes are going to have to wait till they're 65 to get to get any of the benefits that from those taxes that are strangling them.
0: Now, we're, we're going to talk about those two programs. Um, one thing of note is, you know, a lot of these arguments about how, you know, the, the, the socialism in Europe or even like the, the Nordic countries, um, how they are able to pay for this stuff. Um, they live under our security blanket. Mm hmm. They don't have to pay for the aircraft carriers uh, and the bombers and all that stuff. They live under our security blanket, and so therefore they have the ability to pay for that stuff. Now, I think that if you were listening to this and you were against that argument, you'd, you'd probably say, "Well, what are the? How do the numbers shake out?" Um, that I, I'm not entirely sure of. I, I should probably get those numbers, but um, I have seen enough data that uh, that that seems to be a, a pretty true case. The other thing is they're a lot smaller than us. You're talking about countries with like 15 and 20 million people. That's that's the state of Ohio.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, on defense, we we've we've. We've drastically cut defense to about 3.2% of the economy, which is about half of what it was in the 80s, even significantly lower than it was under Obama. Actually, defense spending right now as a percent of GDP is about close to the lowest it's been since the 1930s. Europe spends about 1% of GDP on defense. So we're 1% to 1.5%. We're trying to get them up to 2 but we're spending about 3.2%. So that's a little bit of a, a premium with Europe. And I'd also mention, yeah, I mean, some of these Nordic countries have populations of 8 to 10 million people. They're very homogenous demographically. Uh, they're much smaller. I mean, it's kind of like saying, you know, just because, you know, a certain policy, yeah, could, could work in the state of North Carolina, that therefore it could work as, as a policy for the whole country. I think people read way too much into that.
0: Okay, so how do you fix how do you fix the crisis? You know, let's say that we elect you, uh, president and speaker of the house at the same time. Maybe maybe you'll be the first first guy to do it. Uh, how are you How are you going to fix
1: this? Well, the first thing is, um, you got well, the first rule is stop digging, <laughs> uh, which means stops passing trillion dollar spending bills that we can't afford. Second is you have to address Social Security and Medicare. Again, $100 trillion shortfall for these two programs over 30 years. You could eliminate pretty much the rest of the budget and or double or triple taxes, it wouldn't be enough. So on Social Security is relatively easy. You raise the eligibility age, you trim benefits for upper income retirees, And I would probably raise the payroll tax probably one percentage point because it's just really hard to get the numbers to work otherwise. Medicare is a lot harder. Medicare's deficit is significantly larger than Social Security. In real numbers? I'm sorry? In real numbers? Yeah. Medicare faces a Social Security, including interest, faces a $30 trillion shortfall. Medicare faces a $70 trillion shortfall. And it's because even though you have the same demographic problems, Medicare also faces rising healthcare costs. To put it in, 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 I think, more relatable terms, the average retiring couple today will pay $170,000 and get back $510,000 in benefits. Both of these numbers are adjusted in the net present value. So, yes, it's adjusted for inflation and interest rates. You can't have a program where every couple is getting back triple what they pay in. So Medicare is absolutely unsustainable. Medicare is responsible for 70% of our budget deficits moving forward. You can't fix the budget without fixing Medicare. My approaches are move towards a premium support model where people shop around for their own plan and the government helps pay for it whereby the choice and competition can reduce costs by about seven or 8%. Additionally, you raise premiums for Medicare Parts B and D for for the richest half of seniors. This is the part of Medicare that's not pre-funded with payroll tax. It's basically welfare when you retire. You can't do that for people who are are doing well when they're retired. They're gonna have to pay more of their Medicare Part B and D benefits and then from there, again, I would also raise the Medicare payroll tax one percentage point because the other, the other <clears throat> uh, proposals just don't get you there. If you do that and you also cut in half the tax exclusion for healthcare, care um, and you basically just cap the growth of the rest of the budget, you can stabilize the debt at about 100% of GDP going forward. Keep it, You won't balance the budget. But you can keep the debt at about 100% of GDP, which is the best we can realistically hope for.
0: Which is still enormous.
1: It's still enormous. Yeah, when people talk about, well, what if, you know, let's balance the budget. I've, I've done reports. I've done budget blueprints. You, you basically can't, you can't balance the long-term budget unless you're doing really drastic stuff. And I just want to say when I'm, when I'm doing these plans, <clears throat> the right and the left are both lying to you. The right will tell you that if you just cut welfare and domestic discretionary spending and waste, fraud, and abuse and foreign aid, you can pay for it all or you can balance the budget in five years. That is mathematically nonsense. And the left will tell you that as long as you tax the rich and cut defense, you can pay for this stuff. Mathematically, that is nonsense as well. Neither come within miles of addressing the $100 trillion social, social security and Medicare shortfall. So whenever people promise you easy solutions, we can grow our way out of it. Immigration will solve the problem. Um, you know, again, wealth, welfare and social spending or def, uh, defense, 40, forget it. You have to do social security and Medicare reform. There is no $100 trillion shortcut.
0: Now, Now, this is not a show to get people animated in fact it's it's really um, the opposite of that it's to dig <laughs> into the nuance a lot of this stuff and I, I will tr- I will say this with with no emotion in my voice it, it makes my blood boil that uh, these politicians can't do the simple fixes that everyone agrees on so again I don't know what the numbers are but but even things that get us going in the right direction that you just mentioned so uh, wealthy seniors and if you talked it, any of them, you know, they're 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 patriotic enough. They'll tell you, why am I getting a social security check? Why, wh- why am I getting a social security check when I am set for retirement? You know, they're, they're, How can the how can the two parties not come together and just pass that? You know, I I don't know. I, I'm sure you're going to tell me like how much of a dent like that just that simple thing would make. Mm-hmm. But that is a one paragraph bill that. <laughs> could fly through. Everybody agrees on it, but no, these, these, these people need their cudgels to get reelected.
1: And it's all about personal gain. Um, That's my rant for the day. I just had a report come out: how to cut spending for the rich. And I said, the left wants to raise taxes on the rich and the right wants to cut spending. Why don't we cut spending on the rich? And I came up with An easy trillion dollars that can be saved over the first 10 years and significantly more in future decades, upwards to five, 10 trillion dollars just from cutting benefits for the very rich. And for Social Security, I'm not even talking about kicking people off. I'm saying things like if you're making over $200,000 after you've retired. Maybe you just don't get a, a Social Security cola next year. Maybe your benefit doesn't rise with inflation. If you're making 200000 after retirement, little things like that. Maybe you get a slightly smaller reimbursement. Or on Medicare, if you're making, um, you know, if, if you have a net worth in the millions of dollars, even excluding your home, if you're a multimillionaire, maybe you can pay an extra two or $3,000 a year for your Medicare premiums rather than get essentially a welfare check. I don't think that's too much to ask. You could get a trillion dollars over the first 10 years. You could close about a fifth or a quarter of the long-term social security shortfall just from that low-hanging fruit. But nobody wants to touch it.
0: Isn't there not even a copay on Medicare?
1: Medicare Medicare has modest copays Uh, for Medicare Part A. For Medicare Part B, the way it works and Medicare Part B and D. Can you just give a one-liners of of each one? Medicare Part A, here's the three main parts of Medicare. Medicare Part A is hospitals, hospital coverage. That's what you pay your payroll tax into your whole life. And then you get a benefit. You have some co-pays. You get to go to the hospitals. Medicare Part B is physicians and Medicare Part D is prescription drugs. You don't prepay those with payroll taxes at all. Like that's just you retire and the government just gives you a benefit. The way it works for most people is you pay a premium that covers 25% of the cost. So for physicians and drugs, you pay 25%, the taxpayers pay 75%. And that's not social insurance. You never paid into that with any payroll taxes. You just get a 75% check from the government. The point that i've made is that's fine for poor seniors but shouldn't wealthier seniors be paying their entire cost and we do means test it to a degree like the richest three or four percent of seniors will pay more than 25 percent but even still like more than 95 percent of seniors you pay a quarter the taxpayers pay three quarters that doesn't make any sense for for a lot of seniors who are multi millionaires, it just why are you getting essentially a welfare check that you didn't earn or pay into your whole life that you don't need? Uh,
0: you know, in terms of seniors, the one interest group that I have completely soured on. I mean, I think it's it's a total sham. Who's just propping this stuff up for probably? I mean, here's what people don't realize: like a lot of these groups in Washington. Um, they are very lucrative for the people who run them and the staffers who run them. So they get uh, they they have an incentive to make sure that their issue area and what they're fighting for doesn't get touched and it stays there. The AARP, AARP, you know what? They they should ask uh, the the members, you know, what they think about their children having to pay for for all of this stuff and how their children and their grandchildren are at a serious risk of not inheriting an America that is as strong, as vibrant, as wealthy as the one that they had the opportunity to grow up in.
1: Um, do you have any comment on the AARP? Yeah. The, the AARP is a disgraceful organization. Um, they, they scaremonger seniors. They tell people there's no problem with social security and Medicare. It's all lies. They, they, spend millions attacking anybody trying to fix these programs. Um, recently, Mitt Romney wrote a bill called the Trust Act. All it said was Congress should form a commission to make sure Social Security and Medicare don't go bankrupt. That's all it said. It didn't even tell them how to do it. You can raise taxes. You can cut spending. It didn't even – just it just said – Congress should make sure Social Security and Medicare don't go bankrupt. And the AARP went haywire uh, and, and suggested and, and, and put out postcards for people to send to Washington that said, "Take get your hands off my Medicare and Social Security. So apparently the official position of the AARP is that we should let Social Security and Medicare go bankrupt. Um, because it wasn't even a matter of, we don't like this solution or that solution. It's they, even addressing the impending bankruptcy earns you hate mail from them. Uh, they are an extraordinarily destructive organization. And then there are some other organizations, like the Committee for the Preservation of Social Security and Medicare. There's a group called Social Security Works. And they exist to demagogue and attack anybody who's trying to save these programs, regardless of what your solution is. It is extraordinarily dishonest. These are the organizations that when Paul Ryan said, let's fix Medicare, ran a TV ad showing him murdering a senior citizen. Uh, It is, they're extraordinarily irresponsible.
0: I mean, that's that's the funny part, right? Is that if you say, hey, we want to preserve these programs instead of just simply (laughs) letting them go bankrupt, because in the law, right, that you have to actually... Uh, You have to cut benefits.
1: Under current law, the Social Security – I don't talk about the Social Security Trust Fund because it's basically an accounting fiction. But under current law, if the trust fund goes belly up in 2033 and Congress doesn't backfill it with general revenues, you get a 25% across-the-board cut. That gets bigger every year. Five years from now, Medicare Part A, hospital insurance, the part that you do pay into with payroll taxes – It's about a 20% across the board cut automatically by law. So these organizations saying these members of Congress are trying to cut your Social Security and Medicare, they're actually endorsing instead automatic bigger cuts to Social Security and Medicare when the trust funds go bankrupt. That's how cynical their game is. They're actually, in 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 effect, endorsing an outcome that is even worse for senior citizens.
0: Honest day's work. Uh, (laughs) What? uh, All right. Closing thoughts. We're we're coming up on an hour here. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have any, uh, you know, perhaps pithy or or important message that you would like
1: to get across to the audience here as, as a closing thought? Sure. Younger people really focus on global warming, and you know everything is is. You don't. You may not see global warming today, but the fact that you don't see it now 30, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years from now, it's getting worse and we have to address it now because it's going to be too late then. And, you know, you don't worry about the temperature today. What matters is the long-term trends. You can make the same argument about the, the debt. You may not, you know, interest rates may be low today. You may not feel the effects today, but, This is coming in 20 or 30 or 50 years, and when people say, well, these are just long-term projections, you never know what's going to happen, I tell people. The retirement of 74 million baby boomers into Social Security and Medicare is not a theoretical projection. They walk among us and they're currently retiring. Inflation rates are a theoretical projection. The retirement of the baby boomers and the $100 trillion cost, that's demographics. There's no getting around that. So this, what we're, what's going to hit us in, you know, over the next couple of decades on the debt is, is damn near as guaranteed as what they're worried about on global warming. And so I wish younger people who are so worried about the long-term global warming effect, which is a perfectly legitimate concern, would look at other long-term dangers. And even if they're not want to focus on it as much as global warming, I understand. Keep in mind (laughs) that the decisions you're making today are going to have a long-term effect on that, just like the long-term effect on climate, and that you're, you're facing a big danger too. And I would also add for younger people, senior citizens are laughing at you. They're voting single issue to protect their social security and Medicare benefits at all costs, knowing full well in many cases that they are passing the largest intergenerational debt burden in history into your laps. There's essentially a generational war going on economically and only one side is showing up. Young people are are, are essentially getting robbed by their parents and grandparents, and they're, they're not even paying attention. And so I would say to young people, you're being a little naive. Um, their senior citizens are voting to rob you. Pay attention.
0: I have a Thomas Jefferson quote for you. It <laughs> is incumbent on every generation to pay its own debt as it goes, a principle which, if acted on, would save one half the wars of the world. Amen. All right. We're going to, we're going to stop there. I think, I think we could probably do another episode uh, on the history of this stuff and and kind of when it, where, and when it went haywire, but I think this serves as a a great primer. So thanks for coming on, Brian.
1: Thanks so much, Jeff.
0: And there you have it. There's the episode with Brian. I cannot stress enough how important this stuff is. Hopefully that was clear coming across the podcast. Hopefully, you know, if you made it this far, it didn't put you to sleep, which is great. uh, When talking about these issues,